This evening we begin in our series of membership classes, our very first class, and we're going to be considering the very first term of communion. That first term of communion out of the six terms is this, the acknowledgement of the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be the Word of God and the alone infallible rule of faith and practice. The way I've divided the study this evening is to consider the Word of God under categories of attributes. We have several attributes of the Word of God which really are summarized as well as, uh, as I've seen in our Confession of Faith, the first chapter. What I've done is basically taken the first chapter of the Confession of Faith and just put attributes for each of these uh, headings and uh, you'll see a correspondence. I'll read uh, the heading and then I'll read from the Confession of Faith what it has to say concerning the Word of God and then we'll uh, go and discuss that a little bit. And so that will be the format that I'll be following uh, for this evening's lecture. The very first attribute that we want to consider concerning the Scriptures is the necessity of the scriptures and again that's in the very first chapter and the first section it says this concerning the necessity of the scriptures although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness wisdom and power of god as to leave men inexcusable yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in divers manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church. And afterwards, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church, against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world to commit the same wholly unto writing which maketh the Holy Scripture to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. So why are the Scriptures necessary? Why is that an attribute? of the Bible. Well, we find, first of all, that the light of nature, according to the Word of God and according to the Confession of Faith, the light of nature, the works of creation and providence itself does reveal God to every man so that every man is without excuse. No one will be able to stand before God on that final day even if they never had the scripture and be able to say, but I did not know you, God. God says very clearly in his word that every man knows him because God has revealed himself to every man. In Psalm 19, verses 1 through 3, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech and night unto night showeth knowledge. 
There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. And one more passage in the New Testament, Romans chapter 1. The Apostle Paul makes very clear that there is no one who is without excuse, regardless of his station or circumstance in life. We find, beginning with verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools." and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie." and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. We call this revelation that God has given to man through, through nature, through creation, through providence, natural revelation, as opposed to special revelation, which we'll consider in just a moment. And so natural revelation is God speaking through nature. Everything that is around us, everything from within us, cries out that God is the Creator, that He exists. Man, the Bible says, suppresses this particular truth about God. And so he's accountable for having suppressed the truth which God has revealed to him. Since all men do not acknowledge the God of creation, can we say that natural revelation is defective or insufficient? Well, it's not defective or insufficient to make known the fact that God is the creator. It's not defective or insufficient in that sense at all. It is absolutely clear. We read in Romans chapter 1, It says, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Not unclearly seen, but clearly seen. Did Adam, as you think back to uh, that uh, time shortly after creation, did Adam know God through natural revelation before the fall? Absolutely, he knew God. All of creation shouted to Adam, and Adam saw and heard and understood that creation and his own creation 
gave evidence to the fact that God was the creator of all things. Yet, we move on now to consider special revelation. Natural revelation, however, is insufficient in this sense. It's sufficient to reveal that God exists, that he's the creator, certain of his invisible attributes. But it is insufficient in this sense that it cannot give that knowledge of God and of his will which is necessary for salvation and sanctification. It cannot give that knowledge of God's will. Special revelation is not only the written word of God, but how God revealed himself in times past, in biblical, biblical days, by dreams, by visions, by theophanies, where God revealed himself uh, in the burning bush and revealed himself uh, in the form of a man when he appeared to uh, uh, Abraham, uh, when he wrestled with Jacob. Uh, the second person of the Trinity revealed himself in, uh, in these forms uh, to men. That's special revelation as well. Uh, uh, when God revealed himself through the prophets, through the apostles, um, these are all forms of revelation and especially, or special revelation, and especially how he revealed himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. Special revelation. But he had his apostles and prophets to record out of all that God revealed, he had his apostles and prophets record certain and particular things in his word. Now, this doesn't contain all that God revealed in the Old and New Testament, but it reveals all that God wanted us to know. And it is absolutely sufficient, as we'll see in a little while, that that's another attribute of God's word. It is sufficient. Now, even before the fall, we talked about Adam... Uh, uh, responding to natural revelation, he saw clearly God revealed the natural revelation, but was natural revelation even necessary to Adam before the fall? Absolutely. It was necessary uh, in order for Adam to know the covenant. He would not have, have uh, known all of the terms of the covenant, not to eat of this tree, had God not specially revealed himself to Adam had God not spoken to him. So God's special revelation was even necessary to a sinless man, to a perfect man before the fall of man. So it becomes, if it was necessary for Adam before the fall, a perfect man, how much more it is necessary for man after the fall to understand and know because now Adam didn't have any problem in understanding because sin did not affect his understanding. But since the fall, the uh, what is called the noetic uh, effects of the fall upon the mind of man, uh, man's mind has been uh, marred. It has uh, been corrupted. It has been perverted. His thinking is not according to the will of God. He has sinful thoughts. His imaginations are sinful. And so now especially man needs 
uh, a revelation from God, a special revelation apart from just natural revelation to reveal the will of God uh, to man. But again, just as sinful man suppresses natural revelation, the truth of natural revelation, so sinful man suppresses the truth of special revelation. doesn't want to understand or know that either. And so the scriptures, uh, dear ones, are necessary in order to be, uh, in order for us to know God's will. But the confession of faith also says this, the scriptures are necessary in order to better preserve and propagate the truth. Um, when you have something recorded, written down, that is a better way to preserve without error this kind of truth, this much truth that is contained in these pages rather than orally to simply try and pass it on from one generation to the next. So God gave to us the written, the special revelation of God, the Holy Scriptures, in order to better preserve and propagate the truth against the corruption of the flesh, the malice of Satan, and the world. Because we have many, many enemies in the world who are trying to distort and corrupt the truth. And you get one corrupt person in there, in the line, if you're orally communicating it, and uh, uh, can pervert the whole thing. God has preserved his word in a written form. The same thing can certainly happen by way of copyists and, and this type of thing. Uh, but God, by his spirit, has preserved this, uh, his word by this means. A written standard, not uh, an oral standard, but a written standard. And then finally, the confession of faith says this, uh, at the very end, those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. And so the scriptures, as completed, as finished, the canon, absolutely complete, make the former ways of God's special revelation unnecessary. All we need is the word of God. We don't any longer need special revelation by means of dreams and visions and this type of thing. We have all that God wants us to know. We have, as Paul said, the whole counsel of God. As Jude said, we have the faith which has once and for all been delivered unto the saints. And as John says in Revelation chapter 22, For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. And so, again, God makes it very clear that we are not to add to or take away from his revelation. He has revealed and given us a sufficient revelation. There are no prophets, there are no apostles as God gave to them in the Old and New Testament, and they have left. We have their apostolic and prophetic words 
recorded for us in his word, the Bible. The second attribute that we want to consider is that of the inspiration of the scriptures. Moving from the necessity now to the inspiration. And this is covered under sections 2 and 3 in the Confession of Faith, chapter 1. It says, Under the name of Holy Scripture, or the Word of God written, are now contained all the books of the Old and New Testaments, which are these. And lists the 39 books of the Old Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament. And it says, all which are given by inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. And then section 3. The books commonly called Apocrypha, not being of divine inspiration, are no part of the canon of the Scripture and therefore are of no authority in the Church of God nor to be any otherwise approved or made use of than other human writings. So this question of the inspiration of Scripture, uh, the question we would ask is, is uh, what alone is considered to be Scripture? What is Scripture? What are those canonical writings, those writings that have the mark of God's inspiration, God's breathing forth into these words? speaking forth or breathing forth these words unto the prophets and the apostles. Well, as we've already noted, the 39 books of the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, the 27 books of the New Testament from Matthew to Revelation are those canonical books. All of these are inspired of God. And 2 Timothy 3.16 says, that all Scripture, let me just find it very quickly, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Not some of Scripture, but all of Scripture. <clears throat> Now, these and these alone we believe to be the only infallible rule for faith and practice. Now, as we have in our six terms of communion, there are other rules of faith and practice, but they're not set against the Word of God. They are only rules of faith and practice because they are agreeable to the Word of God. They're founded upon the Word of God. In other words, these other documents, the Westminster Confession of Faith, if it were not agreeable to the Word of God, it would not be a standard which we could uh, uphold, that we could have as a term of communion. And so it becomes a term of communion because it is subordinate to the Word of God. We have one infallible rule of faith and practice. Every other standard is a subordinate standard to God's word. And so we must always keep that in mind. These are words of human beings, uninspired human beings that have written the confession of faith and 
and the catechisms, the directory for public worship, the form of government, uh, the covenants. Uh, these are the words of uninspired men. So we're not in any way comparing or saying that they have the same authority by virtue of them being mere human beings who recorded this. They have their authority only because they are agreeable to the word of God. That's why they're authoritative, because they're agreeable to the word of God. If I say something that is not a direct quote from the scripture, but if I give the essence and substance of what the scripture is saying, what I say, therefore, at that point, is binding and authoritative because it gives the sense of what God was saying in his word. That's why sermons, though they're not given by an inspired prophet, sermons preaching is authoritative insofar as it is agreeable to the word of God. Otherwise, you ought not to come and listen to me preach. If it has no authority, but it has authority insofar as it is agreeable to the word of God. And so do all of these documents. And so does our speech when I come or if someone comes to me and corrects me for something I've done, but they just simply say, uh, I just thought it would be a good idea. And, and uh, uh, this is just a mere preference of mine and that kind of thing. And I can talk with them about that. But I don't have to consider that as being some kind of authoritative thing. But if they come speaking in their own words what God says, then I'd better listen because they're giving to me the sense of God's word. That's authoritative. <clears throat> we find in Second Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 16 through 19, you can write that down. I won't uh, read it. But there, the Apostle Peter even says that the written word of God is a more sure word of prophecy than even the experience he had upon the Mount of Transfiguration. He says, God's written word, the prophecy of his word, is a more sure and more certain word of prophecy. And so scripture is God speaking as the supreme expert. You know, everybody's vying uh, for your attention and saying they're an expert on this and they're an expert on that. But God is saying, I am the expert and I have given to you all that you need to know concerning my will for salvation, for, for faith, for practice. This is it. Now we go on from to that next section where it speaks of the Apocrypha. And it says concerning the Apocrypha, which is just a word that means hidden, hidden books. Now these Apocrypha books that are referred to here, they're not listed uh, in the Confession of Faith, but you will find them uh, in the Roman Catholic uh, Bible. Um, most of them are books that were written intertestamentally in between the old, between Malachi and Matthew, between that period of time, about 400 years. Uh, and uh, you'll find that that's where most of these books uh, fit in historically. 
as far as having been written at that time. Now, the confession says concerning the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament, these are inspired, but it says concerning the apocryphal books, these are not inspired. They ought not to be included in the canon of Scripture. In fact, uh, they have, according to the confession, they have no or more or less authority. Uh, they have no or uh, no more nor no less authority than any other human writings. Now, that means that we can, uh, doesn't mean that we can never open the Apocrypha and, and look at it because there may be historical information in there uh, and uh, all uh, uh, biblical scholars uh, do recognize that there is historical information in there that, that can be very helpful, but is not inspired history. And we need to make that distinction between the history that we find in Kings or in Samuel, Kings and Chronicles and other places in the scripture, the book of Acts, that's inspired history. Whereas the book, uh, the history in, in the Maccabees is not inspired history, though we can again, like we would use other human resources, we can use that uh, to corroborate, not to prove, but to corroborate what we have already found in the scripture. And so that is the position that the confession lays out with regard to the to the apocrypha the next attribute of scripture is the authority of scripture we've considered the necessity of scripture the inspiration of scripture now the authority of scripture that's in Chapter 1 of our Confession in sections 4 through 5. These words concerning the authority of Scripture. The authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. And therefore, it is to be received because it is the word of God. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to an high and reverend esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable ex excellencies, and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. <clears throat> 
why should we believe the scripture to be true? Upon whose authority does the truthfulness of scripture rest and depend? Does it depend upon the testimony of the pastor? Does it depend upon the testimony of seminary professors or converted movie stars or even converted atheists? Does it depend upon the testimony of the church or the testimony of the whole world? So if the whole world believes it to be true, I can believe it to be true. But if the whole world doesn't believe it to be true, then I shouldn't believe it to be true. The authority of Scripture, dear ones, rests upon this. It rests upon God's authority. It rests upon the fact that the Word of God is God's Word. God is speaking in the Holy Scriptures. That's the authority for which the Word of God must be believed and received. God speaking in the Scriptures. Now, all the things I said earlier in which the confession of faith speaks of as, as arguments which can be very helpful in confirming us in our assurance of, of the authority of God speaking in the Word, all of the things that the confession spoke of earlier as to the, uh, the heavenliness of the matter, uh, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, etc., etc., the, the testimony of the church through the ages, all of these things can be helpful uh, to us. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with using this, these, but that is not the authority. That is a confirming type of corroboration. But that is not the basis upon which we believe the Scriptures to be the Word of God. We believe them to be the Word of God because God says so. <clears throat> to put it another way, all the, these arguments that I've just gone through, I just mentioned, all these arguments should testify to the truthfulness of God's Word. And yet it is not truthful, that God's Word is not truthful because all these arguments say so. I mean, it's not on the basis of those. The church can, the church, uh, can uh, uh, be deceived. Uh, various things that we have used for, for evidence can deceive us. But God does not. He has spoken. We find, for example, in Romans 3, 4, uh, let God be true, though every man be a liar. 1 John 5, 9. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. If we consider the testimony of men to be helpful in resolving certain debates and things like this, resolving certain conflicts, then God's testimony and witness is greater. And God testifies to that effect in His Word. Consider this authority, <coughs> excuse me, Authority can depend only on that which is higher than itself. Authority can depend only upon that which is higher than itself. For example, if I leave, uh, 
my son in charge of my two little ones at home. And they begin to get into a little bit of mischief and they want to do something that Josh knows that uh, they're not supposed to do. And he says, uh, don't do that. And they say, well, why not? Who are you? What can he say? It's not who I am. It's who I represent. And mom and dad said you cannot do that. See, the authority he exercises must come from a higher source. The authority of the Word of God cannot come from men. Otherwise, the Word of God would be subject to men. The Word of God is authoritative because God says it's authoritative. It, the authority, authority comes from God Himself. He has the highest witness and testimony that we can appeal to. There is no one higher that we can appeal to. <clears throat> and so this is one of the problems we find with the Romish church. If the authority of Scripture rests upon the church, as is taught in Rome, rests upon uh, basically fallible human beings, then the church is greater than the Scripture because the authority of the Scripture comes from the church. See, in Rome, it is the church which created the Scripture. It is the church which gave birth to the Scripture. But in Protestant theology, it is the Word which gave birth to the church. It is the Word of God which created the church and not vice versa. And that's because, again, authority in the Scripture does not rest upon the church, but rests in God alone. We find, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, talking about the issue of authority and who brought forth whom did the word bring forth the church or the word or the church bring forth the word? First Thessalonians 2.13 says this. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing. Because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which effectually worketh also in you that believe. And so, beginning from the very beginning, how did the church come into being? God used His Word and His Spirit to bring forth life into sinful human beings and to begin His church. The church didn't first begin and then brought forth the Word. We find also in James 1.18, the right order. James 1.18 Of His own will begat He us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. The word of God is what brought us, the church, into being. 
authority does not reside, the authority of Scripture does not reside in the church. It resides in the living God. Thus, to make history, to make archaeology, to make science or human reason, the authority to which we appeal is to, in fact, in effect, make some authority higher than God's own authority. And so we need to be very careful when we're reasoning with people about the authority of Scripture. We need to say this is to be believed because God speaks in the Word of God. And if they say, well, how do I know that God speaks in the Word of God? It becomes one of those kinds of circular arguments You can't appeal to anything higher than God. You cannot appeal as far as authority to anything higher than God. You must appeal to God. Now, you can appeal, as we'll see, to some of these other corroborating testimonies, confirming testimonies, but you begin by affirming the authority of God speaking in the Word. And that's why it's to be believed. In uh, Calvin's Institutes, this brief quote, I think, is very helpful. If you do not begin there, dear ones, you have no certainty that you have the Word of God. If you do not believe that God is speaking in the Scripture, you do not have absolute certainty. What you will end up with is a, a probability that this is the Word of God. That much of it's the Word of God. But unless you have the certainty of God Himself, you will not have absolute certainty. This is what Calvin says. This is in uh, Book 1, Chapter 8, and uh, Section 1. Unless this certainty higher and stronger than any human judgment be present. It will be vain to fortify the authority of Scripture by arguments, to establish it by common agreement of the church, or to confirm it with other helps. For unless this foundation is laid, its authority will always remain in doubt. Conversely, Once we have embraced it devoutly as its dignity deserves and have recognized it to be above the common sort of things, those arguments, not strong enough before to engraft and fix the certainty of Scripture in our minds, become very useful aids. So he's saying here that unless you begin with that presupposition that God speaks authoritatively in His Word, you will never arrive at certainty based on human argumentation. Never based on human argumentation where you have absolute certainty. You begin there, and then you begin to, to add these other helpful aids, as Calvin says, to understanding uh, how other things confirm the fact that God is speaking in His Word. But how does the authority of Scripture come to be uh, believed and realized by some and rejected by others? How does it come to be believed that God is indeed speaking in His Word by some and 
and on the other hand, it is opposed and rejected by others. Well, the, the confession of faith says it is by the inward work of the Holy Spirit. It is by the inward witness and testimony of the Holy Spirit, uh, Holy Spirit who speaks to us by the Spirit. God speaks to us. He illumines our minds. Now, it's not an audible voice that we hear, but God, by His Spirit, opens our minds and our understanding so that we do believe. In fact, we were blind before, now we see. We were deaf, now we hear. And so, God does illumine our understanding, otherwise we would not be able to believe that God is speaking in the Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. 1 Corinthians 10 to, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 12. Make this I think very clear. But God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. And so we know that it is by that testimony of the Holy Spirit that we have come to recognize the authority of the Scripture. <clears throat> A quote from uh, Hodge's, A. A. Hodge's commentary uh, on the uh, Confession of Faith. He says this, The scriptures to the unregenerate man are like light to the blind. They may be felt as the rays of the sun are felt, but by... Let me back up just one second here. It's very small print. They may be felt as the rays of the sun are felt by the blind, but they cannot be seen. And this is the way it is with the unregenerate man. There are certain effects that the Word of God can have upon an unregenerate man, but he cannot see and understand the Word of God. He can perhaps appreciate certain things about it, but he cannot see and understand. That is given only to those that God gives his spirit to. The next attribute is that of the sufficiency of Scripture. Sufficiency of Scripture. And that we find in chapter 1 of the Confession, the sixth section. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, under which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit 
or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word which are always to be observed. The sufficiency of God's word. The Bible says that Scripture is the whole counsel of God in Acts 20, 27. The Bible says that it is the faith once and for all delivered to the saints in Jude 3. The Bible says about itself that it is the perfect or complete revelation in 1 Corinthians 13, 10 to which nothing is to be added or subtracted, according to John in the Revelation, chapter 22, verses 18 through 19. We find that the Bible says concerning itself that Scripture makes one complete, makes one perfect or complete to know and to do every good work. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, not some of God's will, but all of God's will. It is sufficient to know what God expects you to do. And then we find also that Jesus, who is truth, Jesus said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, who is truth, according to John 14, 6, promised his disciples that the Holy Spirit would lead them into all truth. He would lead them into all truth. Now, that doesn't mean that they did not sin after that time. But it does mean that Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would lead his apostles as they recorded the scriptures into all truth without exception they would be given all the truth that was needed for God's people. That to be added to the Old Testament revelation. They would not be given part of the truth, but all of the truth. And that's in John 14.26 and John 16.13. And so Scripture, dear ones, is a sufficient revelation of God's will for all time. No new revelations are needed, and so we testify against Pentecostal charismatic uh, churches which believe that new revelation is needed. We say, no, it is not needed. We need only the Word of God. We testify against Roman Catholicism as well, for Rome teaches that in addition to God, the oral tradition of the church is equal in authority. The decrees of the Pope 
as he speaks ex cathedra from the throne, are infallible, according to the Romish church. The decrees of the councils, as well. All of these things form the oral tradition which Rome says is equivalent in authority to the word of God. Now, this oral tradition is in effect basically what Rome says is that that this is simply the things I had referred earlier to the fact that there are many things that Jesus said, that the apostles said, that the prophets said by way of revelation that are not recorded in the scripture. God had them record a portion of it, but there is much more that was recorded. Rome says that their oral tradition is simply these oral, um, this oral revelation that was given by the apostles, the prophets, that was not recorded, and that has come to us in this day and age. It was revealed to the Pope, was revealed to the various councils, was revealed to uh, the Romish church. And they have uh, canonized it, and now they say it's equal in authority to the Word of God. Well, we would simply say that uh, um, the only way we can know for certainty that something is from God is if it is revealed in the Word of God. We have no certainty uh, other than simply Rome's saying so that what they have revealed, things that are not found in the Scriptures, are indeed what God wanted us to believe. We have no authority to believe that except for what Rome says so. There, very clearly, we find apostolic tradition in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're not denying the fact that there is such a thing as apostolic tradition. 2 Thessalonians 2.15 says this, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, notice, whether by word or epistle. So there were oral tradition communicated by the apostles, but there is also written tradition. Tradition is that which is delivered unto, delivered over from God to the apostles to the churches. That's the tradition of the apostles. It's not their tradition that they simply thought up. It comes by means of the Holy Spirit. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I gave to you what was delivered unto me by the Lord Jesus Christ, that in the night in which he was betrayed, you know, etc., etc. That's tradition, apostolic tradition. Here in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, we find that there was such a thing as oral tradition. But we, again, have no certainty of knowing what is valid oral tradition today. Only the tradition which is recorded in the Scriptures can we be certain about. That this is the canon, not any other form of tradition. This is all that we have to go by. Otherwise, we're simply taking the word of uninspired men and them telling us what is tradition. And if we do that, 
then any of us could stand up and say the same thing. God has revealed to me that this is what one of the apostles said. You see, then it's a free-for-all. We have no standard for truth at all. The only way we know for certain is that God has revealed it in his word. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.